1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 28th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our last show of this year. It's a cacophony of personal reflections looking back at defining moments. An oldie but goodie magical love potion of a film, and saying goodbye to a pioneering activist friend. Just days ago, we found out that Tony Sullivan died suddenly in his home in Hollywood on November 10. His journey made marriage equality history and provided inspiration to countless same-sex binational couples stuck in legal limbo. A few years ago,
2: he shared his extraordinary story with IMRU. In the mid-1970s, Richard Adams and his husband, Tony Sullivan, filed the first federal lawsuit seeking equal treatment for a same-sex marriage in U.S. history. Yes, I did say husband, and I did say the 70s.
3: I'm Cleveland Rorix, former county clerk from Boulder County, Boulder, Colorado.
4: And I'm Anthony Sullivan, the surviving spouse of Richard Adams.
5: I'm Tom Miller. I'm the producer and director of Limited Partnership. A 40-year love story of Richard (laughs) Adams and Tony Sullivan, who met in the early 70s and got legally married in Boulder, Colorado in 1975. But one of the interesting things is that Tony was from Australia, and so they used that marriage license to have Tony apply for a green card.
3: This 40-year saga began in the Boulder County Clerk's Office. In March of 75, I had two guys come to my office asking for a marriage license. They were both from Colorado Springs. And I did not give them an immediate answer. I spoke to our district attorney and got a legal opinion on whether our Colorado Marriage Code would prohibit giving them a license. At the time, it did not. It was not addressed as an issue in the Colorado Marriage Code that a marriage had to be between a man and a woman. So he left it up to me to make the decision, and I decided that I was going to give them a marriage license, and I subsequently went on to issue five more licenses, one of them being for Tony and Richard. At the time, when I issued those licenses, I did it just simply because I felt like it was the right thing to do. I did not know anyone in the gay community. I had never really knowingly met anyone who was gay or lesbian. I was kind of a budding feminist, and we were fighting for our own rights. Our paths at that time didn't cross yet with the gay rights movement. The women's movement did not. So it ended up being a very lonely decision for many, many years. I was never contacted by anyone in the gay community, really, after I issued the license. All hell broke loose in many areas of the country. I received a lot of hate mail, mail from entire church congregations telling me I was creating a Sodom and Gomorrah. The local paper editorialized against me telling me I was going to lower the property value of Boulder since all these gay people are going to flock to town to live. Those six marriage licenses were never addressed legally. Later, Colorado went on to revise the marriage code, but they didn't negate those licenses. And then even later, Colorado went on to have a constitutional ban. And just as Tony and Richard did, I feel that that marriage license that they have is a valid marriage license and that they should have been awarded the rights that they have been seeking for all of these years.
4: Tony, how did you and Richard end up in Clela's office? We had realized that we wanted to be together. And the immigration law at the time was that gay people weren't even allowed into the country as tourists, that if you'd been naturalized, you could be stripped of your citizenship and deported, and you couldn't apply for a green card. And uh, the injustice of this, before we really realized how it affected us, outraged this, and I remember we had a conversation where we said someone's got to change this it's terrible and then of course when you say things like that you're inevitably hit with the thing wait a sec we qualify for that but we you know sort of same token said wait a sec let's back off and we made a decision to wait six months before we decide that we would uh, take a stand and mm-hmm. In that six months, of course, the realisation that we did not want to be separated, which was the main thing, sunk in deeper and deeper. And at the end of six months, we said, well, what should we do about this? So we decided that we would take a stand. And we went to Troy Perry, who had the Metropolitan Community Church, who was performing what was known as Holy Unions. He's been left out of the history a bit, and it's wrong, because before Stonewall, he was talking about gay relationships. People need to remember that back in that time, our movement was fighting just for the right to not be thrown into jail for being gay. Relationships wasn't even on the agenda. So we went to Troy and approached him and said that we wanted to get a holy union and go to the courts on the grounds of freedom of religion like the Native Americans did with peyote. And so we had the holy union. We were uh, planning what to do. And then suddenly we read in The Advocate, the gay publication, about the marriages in Boulder, Colorado. And Richard and I, you know, immediately, oh, this looks right. We waited like a month because it was over a period of time that this was going on. And Johnny Carson was joking on it on television at night and things. And we thought, well, if Colorado has allowed this to go on this length of time when it's receiving high publicity, this must be for real. Because with law, you've got to have a reasonable expectation that the law is... You know, that it's not just a gimmick. So in good faith, we flew to Boulder, Colorado, went to Keeler's office, got issued a marriage license. We were so nervous about the law possibly changing, we took our own ministers with us to getting the license and got the actually married in the courthouse corridor outside Keeler's office and took the license straight back in so that there'd be no chance of it not being received. After the marriage, you applied for citizenship... As Richard's spouse, how did the U.S. government respond? The letter was delivered on a Saturday morning, and the postperson, when I opened it, was still there. We had to sign for it. And I read it, and uh, I thought, no, this can't be real. And so I showed it to the postperson and said, does this say what I think it says? He looked at it and just gave a silent nod. So I gave it to Richard. And I suppose I was a little unkind when he'd read it. I turned around and said, it's your government. The letter said that the petition for me to stay here as the spouse of a U.S. citizen had been turned down because, quote, you have failed to establish that a bona fide a marital relationship can exist between two faggots,
2: close quote. Richard and Tony's battle to stay together led them to flee the U.S. And as Richard was not allowed immigration to Tony's homeland due to an antiquated law in Australia... The couple found themselves without a country, floating around Europe, eventually sneaking back home across the U.S. border with Mexico. Their complex and moving story is beautifully recounted in the documentary, Limited Partnership. But before you can say that was then and this is now, according to documentarian Tom Miller,
5: There are some states that have gay marriage, and there are many cases in district courts now in all parts of the country where the question of marriage equality is going on, but ultimately has to end up in the Supreme Court again, and I just feel it's really important for people to understand from a personal point of view how it affects gay and lesbian couples, and that this is not over until all states have equal marriage rights.
2: Find more information about the film online at limitedpartnershipmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. thanks for listening.
1: Thank you, Tony and Richard, for being that light in the lighthouse. Next, we re-examine a film that offers gay Shakespearean magic.
6: I would love to
7: have you stay for Bible study. I have wings to make. It's a potluck. No, for my son. He's a fairy. A fairy?
6: In a play. Oh. (laughs) Well, in real life, too. He's gay. My son is gay. Or queer.
8: But the wings
4: are for the play.
2: With the lyrics, deep breath. We
9: fairies that do run from the presence of
0: the sun.
9: is Tanner Cohen and I'm in this film called War of the World Mine and War of the World Mine is a musical film fantasy extravaganza and it follows the kind of the tribulations of this high school boy who feels quite trapped in his body and his sexuality and especially in his town and so he reluctantly is cast in A Midsummer Night's Dream at his all-boys preparatory school. And he, with some help of kind of mystical, almost witch-like drama teacher, he, he he himself attains the power of Puck, which is the character he's playing in the play. And so that means that he has this power to make people fall in love with whoever they see once he douses them in, in this potion. So then everyone starts falling in love with each other, and... That means there's a lot of boys falling in love with boys and girls falling in love with girls. And it's, it's almost as if he's getting to live a day in, in the world that he like, fantasizes about. And then he you know, like, realizes what he's done and, and he comes to and everything is made amends. It's completely true. It's actually a documentary.
2: Actually, the feature is based on the 20-minute film, Fairies, that played festivals just a few years back.
10: My name's Tom Gustafson. I'm the co-writer, director, producer of the film Where the World Mine.
5: And I'm Corey Krickerberg. I'm the co-writer with Tom and the one of the producers and the production designer. And, yeah. A lot of other things.
10: <laughs> the short was made in 2004, and when we were done with the short, we started playing the festival circuit. We played about 100 festivals, and every festival we went to, whether it was audience or programmers, people were saying they really wanted to see more. So Corey and I started talking, and we met with this amazing consultant named Bob Hawk, and I was talking to him about a different film that I wanted to make as my first feature, you know, and he's the one who really said, you know, Tom, there's something here that you guys really need to look at because people want more of it. And so on the way home from Outfest, we started kind of thinking of what would it be if we were to expand it. And uh, we went back to the text of Midsummer, and really tried to find moments of Midsummer that wanted to be brought into our script. And we outlined it, and that was I think stage when one. We, I think when we landed
5: <laughs> in New York from L.A., we actually had a full outline that it pretty much is the same structure of the story now yeah. with all, pretty much most of the scenes that were in that outline.
10: That was the easy part. And then, you know, for several years, we had to try to find the financing for a gay musical, which is the challenge.
11: I see their knavery. This is to make an ass of me. I, to fright? Is this a
5: girl's part? You are dismissed.
2: Another challenge was casting.
10: We sent it to a lot of quote-unquote name actors, and we had reactions from, especially for the younger roles, that the script was too gay or... You know, that the timing's not working out. But on a small movie, you never really know what the truth is. Who knows if the script ever even got into the hands of the actors that we were pursuing because we were a small film, you know, and a lot of agents kind of see that and they see that it's a gay script and, you know, they might shield their client from it. It comes with the territory. And, uh, you know, I think if, if obviously, if we were a straight musical and you suddenly asked our actors if they were gay, that'd be totally out of you know left field and weird but our society people when you work on a gay film they want to know. know, And we actually did
5: have some of the some people that are recognizable like young male actors one in particular from High School Musical who whose agent was all about auditioning for the film until he received the script and actually read it and instantly was no longer interested in
10: auditioning.
2: Then they found the amazingly talented and openly gay Tanner Cohen.
10: We did casting calls in LA, New York, and Chicago and uh when we scheduled his audition through his agent, it was actually for his brother. And we got a call right before the audition. They're like, actually David's not showing up, but this guy Tanner, would you will you see him? And we're like, sure.
5: And he walked in the door and he's six four <laughs> and instantly we're like, Oh my gosh, you can't put him on you can't put him next to anybody on camera.
10: <laughs> yeah. He sang at his audition, he sang a Joni Mitchell song. Yeah. And we fell in love with him, you know, and then it was the whole question of how do you make a six four person match with somebody who's 5'10 and have it feel and look right you know so we kind of battled that for a while but that wasn't a huge battle though, it wasn't no he's, I mean, we, he's
5: really really amazingly talented
10: he's not that stereotypical kind of pathetic gay kid that you see a lot in films I mean he really could turn around and and beat the crowd out of these people if he wanted to but he doesn't care like his sexuality is he's fine with it we liked that aspect to it by casting him
2: but even he had a few qualms.
10: I totally have concerns, like as someone who's just starting
9: to do the work that I really love to do, that will be squeezed into a category. Um, But I think that that everyone has that fear and that anxiety, no matter what profession they're in.
2: And what do Tanner, Tom, and Corey hope the audiences take away from their film? It should be
9: a feel-good type of thing, but I really, really, I guess I really hope that it transcends that, like, musical experience and that people, while watching this film, have an experience that is
5: at least a little bit enlightening for them. The purpose for creating something like this with a happy ending that's optimistic and that's a musical and is fun is we haven't seen a whole lot of that in queer cinema. Like, most things have this sort of depressing ending or a depressing all the way through. And we actually had one name actor who was interested in, in playing one of the roles in the film, read the script, and called Tom and immediately said... I really think they shouldn't end up together at the end. We were like, they have to end up together. First of all, it's Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a comedy. And at the end of all of Shakespeare's comedies, there's a wedding. So the whole goal for us was to create that feeling at the end. It's like the end of of one of Shakespeare's comedies where everybody comes together and it's happy and the music swells. And it was really important to us to create something that felt empowering and felt like optimistic about the future of youth and the future you know, of gay cinema and the future of... Just humanity so I guess that's what we hope people take away: a sense of optimism and joy.
2: This is Steve Pride. thanks for listening.
9: And I will sing that
0: they shall hear that I am
9: We know not by what power I made bold But still you flout my insufficiency The more my prayer, the lesser is my grace My ear should catch your voice, my eye your eye My tongue should catch your tongue, sweet melody My tongue your tongue
1: Were the World Mine, the World Mine. is streaming on Outfest Now and, and Hulu Don't go away
11: We'll be right back after this quick break. Kermit Love and Big Bird, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in New Jersey in 1916, Kermit Love first became intrigued with puppets after seeing Punch and Judy at age 7. At 12, he had a horse riding accident and was bedridden for three years. He passed the time listening to radio dramas and drawing the characters he imagined. He was soon making puppets for the Federal Works Progress Administration Theater and designing costumes for Orson Welles's Mercury Theater. He then became costume designer for some of ballet's most famous choreographers. But Kermit Love is best known for constructing Sesame Street's Big Bird. Muppets creator Jim Henson did the original sketch of one of those toy birds that bobs their head in and out of a glass of water. Then Love built Big Bird with some assistance from his partner, Christopher Lyle. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Lloyd Bryant.
3: Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since 1974.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. 2020 has been a horrendous year in many ways. But an impressive number of people have shared their truth, including Tallahassee mayor and Florida gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum, who came out as bisexual. And in the category of dubious additions to the tribe, anti-LGBTQ congressman Aaron Schock confirmed what everyone knew, that he was gay. Next, An audio essay about coming out from Peter Dell.
12: For my brother and me, playing catch became an escape very early in life. The dead-end road in front of our house became a bullpen one day and an end zone the next. My brother and I played catch so much because our parents fought. Graham and I sat and listened through the walls. I sided with my mom's overly emotional pleas while my brother found my dad's logic more compelling. We found that if we went outside we didn't hear their arguments. We also liked playing catch because it provided a way to talk about intimate things without being intimate. We didn't have to look directly into each other's eyes. Tossing a ball around made us both feel like men in the most macho, stereotypical way. He tossed me a knuckleball. Are they fighting about money again, I asked. They never fight about anything else, he answered, as I tossed him the ball back. I heard him say that we may not have enough money to pay for the broken water heater fastball high and to the left. Ball one, I added. Same thing happened last month too when the car broke down. My brother windmilled his arm to loosen it up more. Is that why daddy had water instead of dinner the other night at Joe's Cafe? Yep. As the older brother, he always knew better than I did what was going on with my family. When I finally came out to Graham, it wasn't a coincidence that we were playing a game, a video game this time. Graham, there's something I want to tell you. He shot at my alien, missing. Yeah, he asked. I'm gay. I fired on him this time, trying to capture his enemy base. The seconds ticked down on the clock. Are you serious? My shot went wide, his turn to fire back. Yeah, that's the real reason Christine and I broke up. He carefully aimed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, thanks for telling me. I really like knowing about your life. He scored a thousand points. The game paused, and we were forced to look at each other. I just wanted to tell you, before you found out from someone else, I haven't told Mommy and Daddy yet. I wanted to talk to you first to see what you thought. I'd wait a while to tell them there's too much going on in the house right now with both of us going off to school. This past Christmas, my brother flew in from Chicago to be with us in our Southern California home. We don't see each other often anymore because 2,000 miles separate us. He's a flight instructor now on his way to becoming an airline pilot. My brother now plays on volleyball and softball teams in his neighborhood. He enjoys learning the sport, whatever it might be, and he still plays better than most people on his team. We played catch again for the first time in years. My parents don't fight very much anymore. They seem beyond that now. This time we played catch to have fun. We talked about his wife and my boyfriend and what our plans were. He sent me deep for a fly ball. I caught it over the shoulder, something I had tried for years to master. My brother imitated the roar of a crowd as I made my victory dance in the imagined right-field warning track. Even though I had been with my family for a week, I felt for the first time like I was home.
1: Next, Former Out Magazine editor-in-chief Peter McQuaid fantasizes about being straight for a day.
13: No femmes, fats, or fairies. Straight acting only. Sound familiar? It should if you've ever scanned the personal section of anything from your local gay rag to America Online. I guess the no femme thing means leave the sequins and the boas at home for that first meeting and go for the jeans and jackhammer look. Fats? Well, after all, we live in America, the land of fat, so I'm sure that means those extra five minutes on the Stairmaster is time well spent. Fairies? Well, I'm not sure what this is. I've never met a gay man who could really fly and spread pixie dust as he goes. And in terms of running around and doing little good deeds, it's never been a problem for me. Once I realized a long time ago that nice gets you nowhere in affairs of the wallet as well as the heart, I traded in my wings for a pair of cloven hooves, a forked tail, and the right coordinating pitchfork. However, it's the straight acting thing that has really got me puzzled. I mean, how far do we take that act? Do I have to sleep with women to get a date with a hot guy? And do I have to videotape the action to prove it? Do I have to get her pregnant? Or does straight acting just mean I should wear bad clothes and tell bad jokes? Should I declare war on some country the size of Rhode Island? Or is picking a fight in a bar with someone half my size enough? I had to find out. So I set out on my straight day. 8.30. Wake up to the sound of alarm clock. Throw clock across room. Stumble to kitchen. No food in fridge. Drink half empty bottle of Miller High Life. Eat slice of stale pizza left over from bridge uh, poker game with the guys last night. 9 AM. Stumble into shower. Out of soap. Again. Out of shampoo. Again. Stumble out of shower and into kitchen for dishwashing liquid. Works like a charm skin a little itchy, 10 a.m. Stumble into office, door-to-door Bible sales, car repair shop, construction shed. After a half hour, 15-finger flip-off commute. Note how many women look at me with lust in their eyes. Their biological clocks are ticking. They need me. I want them, but I don't need them. Power. Stumble into men's room to get rid of Miller High Highlife. Notice shirt tail sticking out of fly. 11 a.m. Compliment my secretary on her great, um, uh, endowments. She looks at me with icy stare and says, "Do the word sexual harassment mean anything to you? Ask her if she's a lesbo. Tell her to hold my calls while I take a nap. Noon. Meeting with boss. Talk about pro football for a while. Then ice hockey. Then spring collections. Uh, I mean baseball spring training. Talk about that weird, muscly gay guy personnel just foisted on us so that we meet non discrimination quotas. The girls all like him because he's a sharp dresser, has great manners, and a business degree from Harvard. Yeah, well, fine, I guess, if you like that sort of thing. Hell with you, fairy boy. 1 p.m., lunch date with Debbie. Dumb as a post, but great assets. Think to myself, well, maybe this isn't so different from being gay. While waiting for Debbie to powder her nose, hit on the waitress. Dumb broad tells me to get lost. Must be a dyke, too. 2 p.m., still at lunch with Debbie. She thinks she might be pregnant, wants to get married. I start to blow my top, then realize the last thing I need is another restraining order. Look frantically for my checkbook. She starts crying. I realize I may not have the stomach for this straight thing. 3 p.m., mother calls, wants to know when I'm going to get married. Says the rest of the family is starting to talk about why I won't settle down. Tell mom, just haven't met the right gal yet. 4 p.m. Leave work early to pick up Corvette from shop. 5 p.m. Head to gym. Get body fat reading. 35% not bad. Skip Stairmaster and warm up. Go directly to Bench Press, which is right in front of Bouncing Babes on stationary bikes. I'll impress them by benching 300 right off the rack. 5.05 p.m. Rack loaded, bar gripped, deep breath, heave. Ho! Back is out of whack again. Damn. Nothing some time in the steam won't fix. 5.10 p.m. Head to Steam Room. That muscly gay guy from work is in there. He makes me uncomfortable. I think he wants me. Why do they have to flaunt it? Can't he see I'm straight? Get up. Glare at him. pull towel tight to hide incipient arousal. Slam door on my way out of steam room. 6 p.m. Pick up latest issue of Hustler. 7.30 p.m. After quick bowl of Swanson's Hungry Man Dinner, head off to meet buddies at Sports Bar. 7.45. Sitting, listening to stupid straight guys say stupid things about women they poke every chance they get gets me thinking. If this is what I have to go through to get and keep a gay man... Maybe this homosexuality thing really is unnatural.
1: Other proud members of the LGBTQ community who spoke their truth in 2020 were Oscar-nominated actor Elliot Page, who we know and love from titles like The Umbrella Academy, X-Men, and Juno publicly came out as transgender in a December letter posted on his social media accounts. Z Nation star DJ Qualls came out as gay on his Twitter account. And while Teen Wolf star Tyler Posey did not label himself, he did reveal that he has and does hook up with men. Next, Abby Dees writes a letter to self.
7: Dear 14 year old me, as yet another year gets underway, I realize that I've owed you a letter for way too long. I know that you feel hopelessly awkward and out of sync with people, but you haven't been around long enough to know how well you're actually doing. You know how people keep saying, be yourself, and how they don't seem to give a damn when you do just that? Maybe they're hypocrites, but try not to take it personally. In time, you'll see that we all have hypocritical moments. The deal is, they're right, but they don't understand or tell you how difficult a task being yourself actually is. I can assure you, though, that the only way to get through what seems like an endless wait to grow up is to believe that you are, indeed, fabulous. I mean, don't be a self-centered jerk, but rather... Someone who appreciates her gifts and doesn't care about anyone else's vision of perfection. It's the only way to get to where you want to go. Yeah, it's hard. So what? You have to do it. You will do it. Along those lines, I cannot emphasize enough how much you should ignore the family's nattering on about your weight. You'll learn later on just how bonkers they are and how lovely you are. Instead of pinning all your life's hopes on being 20 pounds lighter, how about giving occasional props to your classically shaped, perfectly acceptable body? Spend that energy getting better at guitar, or reading, or picking your toes. Really, better use of your energy than starving. You won't be a rock star, I hate to tell you, but if you'll also stop believing that you're too fat to front a band, or make friends, or put yourself out there in front of people at all, you'll never regret taking those risks. Live now, don't wait. And please give up trying to tan. You don't wanna have to spend the rest of your life scanning for melanomas, except that you have no melanin. Anyway, people will compliment your fair skin when it becomes fashionable in a few years. You will be loved and appreciated in your life for who you are, which is exactly the same person you are now, only with a lot more confidence, as well as a gentle acceptance of your flaws. That's how the be yourself thing pays off. You'll even have to find delicate ways to let people down who fall for you, which sucks. But I want to underscore the fact that you can stop worrying right now that you're destined to be alone. Did I mention that you were a lesbian? You knew that already, of course. You'll go out with boys just to make sure, and because you want to try to be normal, and because you're itching to experience everything. That's fine, I guess. Just don't expect much. The sooner you face your truth, then the sooner you can live your life fully with a big eating grin to boot. I should also give you a heads up that normal is wildly overrated. You'll discover this repeatedly. Take all those secrets and things that embarrass you and dump them in the trash. This includes any shame about being gay, your birthmark, everyone has them, or those rock star dreams. As soon as you speak things out loud and claim your quirks proudly, you transform vulnerability into strength. This is the definition of having balls, or ovaries. Understand that adults are more confused about life than they let on. As a result, they'll inevitably underestimate you. Listen to your gut about whether they're being straight up with you. If so, then pay attention. Ask their opinions, and then remember the ones who really look you in the eyes as they share them with you. Remember the ones who care what you have to say, especially if they take the time to challenge your ideas about things. In about 30 years, you'll want to send them a thank you letter for treating you with real respect. The future will arrive in due time, and it'll be worth all the struggle to get there. I promise. Love me. This is Abby Dees.
1: Don't go away. We'll be right back after this
11: quick break. The Creators of Big Bird, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. It took two creative minds to create Sesame Street's Big Bird. Jim Henson provided the sketch, and Kermit Love designed and constructed the 8-foot, 2-inch Big Bird costume. The bird was covered in turkey feathers, dyed primrose yellow, which were attached upside down to give him a slightly ruffled appearance. Kermit Love devised a mechanism that allowed Big Bird to drop a few feathers at will, Sometimes, he even appeared on Sesame Street playing Willie the Hot Dog Man. Big Bird became one of the world's most beloved children's characters and earned a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1994. In 2008, Kermit Love died of congestive heart failure. He was survived by his partner of 50 years, Christopher Lyle. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Lloyd Bryant.
13: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you're listening to I-M-R-U, Radio Magazine. Flash actor Rick Cosnett came out as gay in a February Instagram video. Emmy-nominated Taylor Schilling, best known as Piper Chapman in Orange is the New Black, confirmed her sexuality and her relationship with girlfriend Emily Ritz during Pride weekend. Nikki Blonsky, the 31-year-old Hairspray star and Golden Globe nominee, took to TikTok over Pride Weekend, to come out as lesbian. And now, an audio essay from Rita Gonzalez that ponders the sexuality of a beloved pet.
6: They say that apples don't fall far from the tree but I never thought that statement would apply to a lesbian and her rabbit. When I first saw Bucky, he was confined in a tiny cage at a relative's home. Whenever I'd visit, I felt guilty, like an accessory to a crime. Cramped in his small quarters, he seemed so unhappy. On one particular visit, I could take it no longer. Don't you think we should find a new home for the rabbit? No one takes him out or pays any attention to him. And so I, Rita Gonzalez, naively took the rabbit in search of a better life. I made quite a few inquiries, but no one wanted a grown rabbit that was a bit too exuberant and at times not particularly friendly. Weeks passed into months, and Bucky hopped around his little condominium I made him on my back patio, oblivious to my failing attempts to find him a new home. And then the strangest thing happened. I'll never forget that night. I awoke to the screams of my roommate. Rita, help! He's in bed with me. Get him out! A million things ran through my mind until I realized she was talking about the rabbit. I followed her voice and found my roommate now sprinting across the living room, flapping her arms. He's after me! Help! Help! And sure enough, Bucky was making a mad dash for her. I rounded the coffee table just as the rabbit hopped onto her leg and held on for dear life, his little body eagerly pushing to and fro against her bare calf. My roommate screamed and ran faster, trying to dislodge the creature by alternately running and kicking her leg out. The rabbit, intent on his course, looked happier than I would ever seen him. My God, Rita, get him off of me! Easier said than done. First, I had to stop laughing. Then I had to catch the unlikely couple. That rabbit was on a mission. Finally, as my roommate slowed down, I managed to separate the two with considerable effort. I took him outside as he kicked and complained. It seemed he had escaped his condo and found his way through the doggy door. I returned to comfort my traumatized roommate. She explained, I woke up because I felt someone staring at me and there he was. Bucky was on my bed looking longingly in my eyes. Well, that night the rabbit spent hours throwing his body against his pen, trying to gain entry to the house and my roommate again. After that, whenever the rabbit saw her, he immediately became aroused. Between that and the fact that even the animal sanctuary people wouldn't take him unless he was neutered, I knew what I had to do. I found a low-cost clinic and set the date. That fateful morning, with my roommate's help, we seduced Bucky into a little car carrier. She simply put her bare leg against the bars on the other side, and he eagerly hopped in. Bucky and I made our way together to the clinic. I explained to the veterinary assistant that the rabbit needed to be neutered. With lightning speed, she grabbed Bucky by the scruff of his neck, totally neutralizing him. Wow! I wish I could grab him like that. I can barely catch him. Comes with plenty of practice, ma'am, she assured me and proceeded to take Bucky through the double doors into another room to examine him. She immediately came back into the room. Uh, miss, I hate to break it to you, but this is going to cost extra. I don't understand. What do you mean? Your rabbit? It's a female. It can't be, the pet store told my sister it was a male. She held Bucky up to quiet my protest. The proof was right there before my eyes. The vet assistant continued explaining the procedure in detail. I began to tune her out as a smile slowly stole across my face. Who would have guessed? All along, my little Bucky was really a lesbian. an entire
1: generation readies itself for 2021 with grinder and social media the go-to to satisfy love or lust arnold pomerantz remembers an earlier time in gay cruising in subway dreamboat
14: when i attended city college way back when i joined a fraternity can you imagine here i was a closeted gay man joining a fraternity of exclusively straight men but they were lively and social and i felt that i was going through this phase you know it would it would certainly pass that's all i had to meet is a lot of women and a lot of straight guys and i would give my mama what she wanted that house in the suburbs you know two and three quarter kids a white picket fence and because I was a good dancer, I got a reputation in the fraternity for being a kind of a ladies' man because women were attracted to me. I was, a, you know, I was a good dancer. And we had lots of Friday night socials. I was social chairman. I got to meet other social chairmen. It was lots of fun. Every Friday night after the party, most of the guys would pick up on women. What they did, I had no idea. But I knew that the relationship that I had with women ended that night. I feigned sleep, I feigned that I had to do some errands for my mother, and and then I left the fraternity or closed it up sometimes. It was on 23rd and Lexington Avenue and it was a really cold night. And it was a local stop, the 23rd and Lexington Avenue stop. And I walked down into the subway. Now this is the 50s. So this is about 50 years ago. And the subway was deserted, totally deserted. There was a man in the booth and he was half asleep. And as I entered in the subway, I walked to the very end of the platform and, and that's where I happened to notice there was a men's room. Now in the old days, that was the tea room. That was the meeting place. And I had suspected that there were shenanigans going on in there, but I absolutely had no intention of ever getting involved in doing that. It scared me. And then, and we had to wait a long time for the trains, this beautiful man came into the station, him and me, and there was an immediate chemistry and interest. He wore a pea coat and a sailor hat, and he was... He was a dreamboat. He was infinitely prettier and more attractive and got my heart racing than all those women that I was seducing on the dance floor at the fraternity that night. And he kind of walked into the men's room and looked behind him and brought me in. I was terrified, but I was more excited than terrified. Just the idea, and this was a first for me, of Being, touching, feeling, looking, holding another man able to express my long pent-up sexual yearning exploded. We went into a little corner of the john and we hugged and we held and we caressed each other and I started to breathe hard and he was just, he was a dreamboat. I thought for a moment I was gonna spend the rest of my life with this man. This was the man of my dreams. This was my Clark Gable and Cary Grant. And before we even got into anything sexual, the door was flung open and a number of people, including a policeman, came in. And we were wrestled to the ground and taken out of the bathroom subway police. I guess the man who I thought was sleeping at the change counter had alerted the police. And, you know, I didn't know if it was entrapment, uh, but it was something that I felt was the most terrifying moment of my life. And as we were being dragged out of the bathroom, this beautiful man of my dreams started to cry. And I looked at him and, and recognized how much I hated him that my love turned to hate, my passion turned to hate. It was his fault. He was the one who entrapped me. And then they dragged me away, and I peed in my pants.
1: Maybe we should have saved that story for Valentine's Day. In August, Claw's star Nisi Nash came out in People magazine and introduced her beautiful new wife. Canadian Olympic swimmer Marcus Thormeyer came out publicly as gay in a February essay published in Out Sports. And finally, The Good Place star Jamila Jamil publicly came out as queer in February on Twitter after her casting as an MC and judge on HBO Max's Vogan competition show Legendary sparked controversy. We close out our last show of twenty twenty with an audio essay from Chris Coltman.
8: I was growing up, and I'm talking about quite a long time ago, 60 years, New Year's Eve was a really big thing for me because it had to do with dressing up. My parents, like most people at the time, would always go to a New Year's Eve dinner and dance. They might go to a large hotel or to a private club, and I used to love seeing them get ready for the evening. Dad would make all of Mum's clothes, and when it came to the dance dress for New Year's Eve, it was always a grand affair which he would design, always made of some lovely, shiny material, silk, taffeta, something like that, loads of sequins in wonderful patterns and different colors, and he would dress up almost like a Christmas tree himself. And indeed, because people admired his work so much, He would be asked by many of the young women in the neighborhood to make their dance dresses too. He had to be very sure that he designed different looking dresses because no two peoples could be anything like the same, especially if they were going to the same place. And after they left for their wonderful evening, I would be put to bed by my grandmother. But there were two New Year's Eves when I was also involved. The first was when I was six and I was taken to the Railway Institute. That was a particularly interesting one for me because I'd never been taken to anything quite like this before. And I harassed my dad for a drink because I had been brought up on alcohol, lots of beer. Gin was like mother's milk to me. And dad had already tanked himself up. So he ordered me a double rum. And I can still remember how I felt after that and complained to my grandmother as I waddled over the dance floor saying I felt sick. And she said, well, go outside and get some coffee. Never touch rum again till I was 18. The other big New Year's Eve was when I was 14. And I was taken to a very large hotel for a New Year's Eve dinner and dance. And that was really nice. The first time I wore a tuxedo and had a bow tie, which went askew after I'd had a few drinks and went even more askew after the cabaret, which was a French troupe, including a petite, and very pretty striptease dancer, whom, as I was tanked up, I asked for a dance afterwards, and her husband said that would be fine.
9: Wonder whose arms will hold you good and tight When it's exactly twelve
8: o'clock that night Welcoming in the I have to admit, I would rather have danced with him, but it was 1957. And when you're 14 years old, you know, there are some things you can do on New Year's Eve in front of a lot of people and some things you can't. But that was a really memorable New Year's Eve for me. There were a couple of boys from my school who were also at that, and they never thought to see me forward enough to dance with the striptease artist, so that plus the fact that the end of year production at the school included a small play with lots of female parts always popular in a boys school and I'd played Annie the Mad Maid so those two things together made my last year at school extraordinarily a popular one for me, a a role I'd never experienced before or since
1: Okay, that's it for tonight and this year. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And please note, masks, social distancing, hand washing, and sanitizing precautions were all taken in the production of this show. Be careful out there. We close with "Old Lang Syne from queer musician turned tattooed Tennessee farmer Daniel Cartier. Good night.
0: Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance Yeah.